0: the community entirely appreciates the work that you do. You're the first line of people that see real ECMO candidate patients and uh, can make things happen for them or not. And so the way you've been pushing the envelope to try to advocate so that more people have a chance is impressive and inspiring.
1: Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. 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 This is Edie ECMO. All right, Edie ECMO. It's Zach Scheiner and it's June 2023. And uh, I got John Marinero back from last month. You heard him and uh, the episode last month was fantastic, John. I I just I got so much great feedback about it, including my own shop. And people want to know some questions. You mind if I uh, ask you a couple things? Absolutely. Thank you so much. So, one of the things that people want to know is the algorithm. Like, how do you decide these PE patients? Do you have something written down that, like, you use, or is this kind of just a thumbnail thing?
2: No. So, I mean, we use the standard massive PE guideline, and then we use the standard submassive PE. So, again, for massive PE, if you're hypotensive systolic less than 90 or a systolic that dropped more than 40, um, and you have a large clot burden or a presumed large clot burden or an on echo in the ER you're dying and somebody does an echo uh, and you have a large right heart and you don't have an exclusion criteria, you know, you're not 85 years old or, you know, you're, you're, you're less than 75 and you're, you know, not metastatic disease, et cetera. Then we go ahead and put you on and uh, you know, I think we've got ECMO so streamlined that we try not to overthink the um, indications and try to say, you know, what can we do as opposed to being like,
1: this has got to be the perfect patient. Cool. And so the second thing that's come up is data. They want to know data. They want to know what your shop is doing. I put a couple of those things in the show notes last month, but, but can you reiterate that again? Just what, what is your data that you have so far about the stuff that you're willing to share? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'll say in 2016,
2: prior to us using ECMO for um, massive PE, we had four of five patients die and um, they all got the regular TPA dosing uh, for their massive PEs and uh, four or five died. It's 2017 to current. If you have a massive PE, no one, and you're not already in cardiac arrest, we have a hundred percent survival. Um, and, you know, that is, 30, 40 patients. Um, I don't really know what the, the amount of patients it is because you, you're asking me offhand. And I didn't pull it up in front of me. But um, uh, since 2017, we have not had a massive PE at our institution die unless they were already in cardiac arrest by the time we got called. And if they were, we actually have a 50% survival
1: for those. So good. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, I think this is a game changer. I think uh, a lot of the people on the the podcast are thinking about changing their algorithms. I know we are, uh, thanks to you. So, appreciate it. Yeah,
2: I I would. The other thing I would just say is that, you know, we are to the point now where you don't actually have to have crazy big cannulas, right? We're doing uh, 13 French arterial uh, returns. And so, you know, we're limiting the damage and limiting the complications. You don't need typically reperfusion cannulas and all that kind of stuff if you go with smaller cannulas. And I just pulled up our data on 13 French cannulas and uh, we've done 14,
1: 13 French cannulas. And I'm going to, we're sorting through the data to see if we can get a, a publication out of that. And tell me again, because I, I this is the other thing that people want to know, 13 French, what kind of flows are you getting out of that? I mean, you can flow up to five liters uh, with a
2: 13 French. I mean, you know, again, you're not putting these people on for weeks. And so you're with through a 13 French, you're putting them on for on average, three to four days with an ECPR, these massive PEs, it's much less. Uh, and if you look at Jason Bardos's literature out of, uh, and Yannopoulos' literature out of Minnesota, their average flow rate on an eCPR was three and a half liters. That we're clearly getting without a problem. Are um, you know, we still have the typical problems with venous insufficiency, maybe limiting, but it's not the arterial return side that is limiting our problems. So, um, and again, hopefully I'll have some data that shows that, um, and uh, we can
1: talk more about that in a future episode. So good. Well, thank you, John, for all that you've been doing with the podcast. It's been fantastic now john you had another fantastic idea one i can't believe that we haven't we haven't had this person on the podcast before uh john had the idea to invite christine stead the ceo of elso to join us to talk about what elso does look at a little bit into the future about what elso is doing and uh, and just tell us about herself so thank you uh, christine for joining us today
0: yeah happy to talk about whatever you'd like
1: well, I'm going to let you guys run uh, run with this, and then I will interject, however, but John and Christine, thank you. Gotcha. Thank you so much, uh, Zach, and uh, welcome, Christine. You know,
2: uh, so you're my number two interview. I appreciate, Zach, for for somewhat turning me loose here a little bit. He's, got, he's taking that one training <laughs> wheel off. I still have one training wheel on, though, and... Um, <laughs> And so he's doing this, and, and I, I'm, you know, again, I'm starting my uh, my interview thing here with people I know well. So uh, you and I have met a number of times as uh, we teach at Elso together. Um, and you know, really, what I want to know is, as a person who's the the, the CEO of Elso and uh, you know running the ship, can you just give us a little brief history of Elso and talk about you know wh- where you see it, how it started.
0: Oh, that's a great question, and and I think pretty well known, but I'll do my best here because one of the key things is the person who founded ELSO, and that's Dr. Um, Bob Bartlett. I'm sure if you've done ECMO at all, you've seen him, heard him, uh, certainly have read his work, but he was the founder of ELSO in 1989, actually, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is one of the early centers that did ECMO, but it wasn't the only place, and so in 1989, he thought you know, maybe we should just get some people together that are doing this because it wasn't standard practice and not a lot of people did it. And really the people doing it at that time, I would say were pretty brave and we consider them the pioneers. If you can imagine doing ECMO in 1989, uh, there's not a lot of successful cases. There's, you know, very little uh, data out there, no RCTs and, um, you know, you're, you're a pioneer in every sense of the word. And, and I think the case then is, is often the case that that is still in front of, you know, you, just as you were describing a minute ago, John, about the massive PE patients, your alternative is um, not providing ECMO, and that's a pretty stark alternative for patients. And so just as it is today, in many ways, it was in 1989. But what was unique then, which continues to add value in how we come together, is what we learn together. And so also one of the other great ideas uh Dr. Brettley had at the time was maybe we should share our data. And so that started with a, send your a piece of paper over describing your patient and what happened with them to now, you know, pretty robust registry. Um Last month we reached over 200,000 cases or patient runs that are in the ELSO registry. That makes it the oldest and the largest in the world um, for ECMO patients. And what's beautiful about that is, that knowledge then is something that everyone can learn from wherever you are. Um, also has done a lot of work to, as we think about how to improve quality for both patients and what things matter, both in the equipment you're using, but also the processes you use. You have your own data now through a quality dashboard that you can use in education and training, M&M's. Uh, just, you know, reviewing how you're trending. Is this reasonable? These last two patients of ours died. Is that Should we expect that, especially if you're starting a new program of some kind? And this will give you some guardrails. It will give you a sense of how you're doing. But it's also um, in a growing opportunity for new knowledge. And that's one of the most important things I think also was founded on is that Potential, but we're actually delivering on. So, in in uh, 2022, there were 42 publications that referenced the Elso Registry. That number just keeps growing. We have a pretty robust scientific oversight committee now that looks like a mini NIH review if you think about how that works. Um, but these are all people like you and and Zach, and dedicated people to the field that just want to do better for the patients. These really sick patients that. Um, you know, might benefit from ECMO. So, how can we help more of them have better outcomes and and learn from them? And that that's also in a nutshell. It's if you're into ECMO at all, you ought to be a member. You can make things happen. It's a great place to be. It's collaborative, and it feels like family. Um, wherever you go in the world, and and I get to accompany Dr. Bartlett sometimes. I'm lucky in that way. But he's anywhere in the world. He's everybody's friend, and he's welcome wherever. And people are grateful. But also cordial and familiar, like actually feels like family. And I think that's um, something else that's unique about also as a medical society, if you want to think about us that way, is that we do feel like family. And, and by that, I mean, not just any specialist, it's the whole ECMO team that is part of taking care of ECMO patients. So the bedside specialist, and that's a variety of people, as you know, it's respiratory therapists, perfusionists and nurses, um, and then all of the different uh, medical specialists that are part of taking care of ECMO from emergency medicine physicians to um, cardiac surgeons and everything in between. And all of the patient population range from neonatologists to uh, adult patients. So it's it's just great to be part of. and And I feel like anything's possible here. So it's kind of fun.
2: Well, you know, um we I think Zach and I and the entire ECMO world would make sure you uh give Dr. Bartlett our uh our eternal thanks because obviously as uh you know the grandfather or the godfather or whatever role he wants to be of ECMO, he really has set the benchmark high. And I know he's uh you know, he's actually still working on some pretty active uh, research things that uh probably somebody can explain better than me, but uh he's uh He's an amazing guy, and uh if you had a chance to meet him. uh you know, please uh, for the for the listening audience get out there and shake his hand because he's he's really the the guy who sent the benchmark. And if you remember that picture from I want to say it's like nineteen sixty nine it looks like the guy's hooked to a keg um and uh, he's like the the trauma <laughs> <laughs> but but either way, the keg worked, I think, and saved his life, and that was that first save. Um, so, you know, I appreciate what ELSO has done. I appreciate what ELSO is doing. Tell me where you see ELSO in five and 10 years.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we're we're getting ready to, um, so here's what I would say about the pandemic and how that may have inspired where we're headed. Um, there was a lot of interest in ECMO, certainly for new programs. The demand was absolutely there in terms of the patients that could benefit from ECMO that were COVID patients suffering from ECMO. And so one of the things we saw was a lot of of growth, um, including new programs and, and interest that way. But it made us think there's a huge opportunity for education and training. There's a huge opportunity also for some standards. Um, and I know that's super inspiring when everyone says standards, like who doesn't want to be part of that? Um, sounds like really exciting, which I know it's not. But what is important and maybe exciting about that is improving access uh, to ECMO, to more patients around the world and and in the U.S. in in particular, making it more of a standard, but also doing that in a way that, you know, when you're part of that program or going someplace that there are, uh, that it's a safe program and it's a high quality program. Um, So during the pandemic, we were able to establish a global standard for adult ECMO education. There hadn't been one before. And we had about a hundred people involved in shaping that from around the world. We're doing that same thing with neopedes right now. Um, but we'll soon be launching center certification as well. So if you're a center anywhere, um, and you want also kind of what, what do we think as a society is important to have in place, you'll be able to, um, pursue that coming up. And, and that's, what that really is 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 the benefit of everyone's collective best thinking about what you need, and it will help physicians anywhere that want to do this and are trying to help establish a program and, and say to your administration, "What do you need to do this well?" Well, this is what you need, and this is how to do some of this work, um, and here's how to do this long term well. Because if any of you know that have been in this or started one of these things, it's not just buying a circuit. Obviously, it's many more things than that, and so we're gonna do our best to help make it easy for people to have high quality programs and to be well-trained. Those things are great, but then the next piece is there's so much research yet to be done and opportunity to innovate and invent that that's really exciting uh, too. So five, 10 years, I'm hoping we're looking at some uh, real advancements in the science and the technology, because as you know, John, um, and Zach, we also have our device developers as partners. I was just meeting with the FDA this morning um, on their behalf with the uh, recall, the Gatinge Quadrox oxygenators and some other devices they've had out in the market. But but um, helping our device developers advance their technology, it's a really important piece that also contributes to as well. Um, so that matters. That's the tools you have at the bedside that you're able to offer to your patients. And we play an, an important role in that.
2: Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. If you look at what Elso does, you'd be like, okay, Christine's got a staff of 30 people and there's like, you know, blah, 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 blah. There's like four of you guys, right? There's like Peter Rikus, <laughs> there's you, there's Kinethea Banks, and then I I'm, there, there's like another one or two people that I'm, I'm blanking on. <laughs> and you guys run this massive organization that is meeting with the FDA and, and advocating for us and creating certification programs, et cetera. And um, how do you find um, the ability for a small group like you guys are doing that you have to be everywhere? What is it? What are you doing that is uh, giving you that?
0: Well, John, you know, the answer to this question, because you're part of the answer to this question. And that is we have an enormous group of people around the world that are interested in making things better for ECMO and ECMO patients. And so we have great uh, task forces and committees and uh, things that come up where people say, yes, let's help do that. Uh, early in COVID, just releasing the guide guidance document that we did early on, that was through every, but what do we know? Like right now, what do we know? And so we did an early one of those. We looked at early data that got published in the Lancet. We did a follow-up article with that that was over 200 centers data that people changed their process entirely from submitting after a patient had been discharged, which is what we had asked for pre-COVID days, to we need your data now to know how many patients are on ECMO so that we can help change um, national policy country by country about whether ECMO should be offered to patients that are COVID patients. And that's uh, the work that you all did, frankly, not, not the four or five of us, but we're big because we have a lot of people that are interested in being part of this and making it better. And we're just masterful of bringing you all together and, and leveraging, uh, you know, getting your best thinking out to the rest of the community.
2: Gotcha. Well, you know, I could tell you, I just obviously just got done teaching with Phil Mason over the weekend uh, with you guys at Elso. And I want to say Joe Tona is is involved in committees with you. And I think there's, you know, many, many more people across the country who are involved with the committees that make uh, Elso. How does one get involved with Elso? How did like, okay, I'm, I am in, you know, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I need to, uh, and I want to become involved in Elso. What do I have to do?
0: Yeah, that well, first I'll just point out that Zach is equally guilty of being involved in ELSO because he has a monograph that was published not too long ago with Janelle Bajalak, an amazing physician in her own right, both uh, great leaders in the field uh, for ECPR. And so there's a nice textbook out there, thanks to both of them uh, for leading the way on that. But that book is a good example, maybe to help answer your question. We publish books, we publish guidelines, we do teaching and training there are a variety of things that you might find you're interested in. And so first thing would be to just raise your hand and let us know what you're interested in and um, maybe send your CV so we can get a sense for your experience. That helps us think about and triage, if you will, here, oh, this project starting this person would be great for this, or this person has a great idea. Can we coalesce an effort around that? And and is that something else that wants to do right now? So that's the way we try to connect the dots. It's not always fast. Um, sometimes it takes a few months for something to be happening. Like the course you just taught, um, John, I think we had that on our you know, website for people to sign up for, for three or four months. Uh, we'll have another round in, in November, but if you want to be part of faculty, you would do what John did. And that's raise your hand and then come join us for a course and see if that's really what you like to do. And the faculty there will also be, feeling, you know, seeing if, if you're someone that would fit in nicely for this kind of work, because you're right, it's a weekend. And Zach, I can't tell how many weekends you gave up to help write that textbook, but it's a great contribution in the field. And it is, it's extra time, but it's one of these things that's like a, a labor of love, right? The people that ultimately benefit from your work are are really patients that have a new opportunity, thanks to all of you.
2: Yeah, you know, uh Zach's book, um, the which is the ECPR kind of Bible, I would say, and uh it's the accompanying book to the uh to the Red Book, uh probably both have the ELSO contact information. So those who want to uh reach out to ELSO can reach through uh you know the information in those books. Um, so, you know, you've talked a lot about everything ELSO is doing across uh, everywhere. What is, does ELSO have a political action committee? Does ELSO have like something uh, they're lobbying with CMS for helping the practitioners bill more or for regulations, et cetera?
0: Oh, that's a really good question, John. So, we specifically don't have a political action committee. We're, as a nonprofit, at least the way our nonprofit is organized, uh, we uh, don't do any lobbying. What we do do, is advocacy. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that in the, in the face of the equipment recall where we um, realized there's a significant equipment, you know, that impacts a lot of people in terms of a, a particular oxygenator that's used a lot in really globally. So not just the U S um, what we did in that case so far was put a survey together to try to get more information and, uh, Our device developers, but also the FDA, we work with pretty carefully now, um, both on getting devices approved. So sometimes we use ELSA registry data to say this device works very similar to a predicate device in another market, and that data gets submitted by the device developer to the FDA for approval. But also we'll talk to the FDA like we did this morning. I think we had three different departments of the FDA on the phone, just to help them understand, you know, our different shortage departments, the COVID-19 response team was one of the people that put that call together. So I think they're still somewhat together dealing with shortage issues and the like, but um, we'll work with people more directly and we'll try to be fact-based as much as possible, but there's a a nice opportunity and nice relationships that we've grown over time to help advocate for our community when there's a need. Um, And that's true for CMS. You may recall 2018, there was a re- significant reduction in reimbursement for ECMO. Um, any you know any of the DRDs related to ECMO, and also and thanks again to Jonathan Haft who took the lead there, writing this writing CMS to get that reversed. Uh, but we partnered with a few other medical societies uh, to try to make that happen. So when those things happen, we have enough relationships uh, with people like you know CMS and know how to reach them. But um, we are. Paying attention to things like that on behalf of our community.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that example of what Jonathan Haft also, and then I also believe like the critical care medicine and yes. uh Critical you know, Care Medicine, I think Chest and other groups all got STS, together. I think
0: too. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Like that was a monumental thing because you guys, you know, for those who don't know, like the DRG for ECMO went from 110,000 down to like 12,000 for peripherally uh, inserted ECMO cannulas. And, you know, yeah when you're talking a, you know, a circuit itself could be $14,000 on uh, if you're using CardioHelp and higher. Um, the, you know, that's, you, you know, this becomes cost prohibitive for hospitals to try to save lives. And I think, uh, the work that you guys have done, um, in demonstrating that with the data is, it shows that ECMO does save lives. Um, so tell me a little bit more about what's going to happen this fall and the ELSO conference that's going to go on in Seattle on September 28th through, I believe, October 1st. 1st.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, hopefully you'll be there because uh, I, I don't think you'd want to miss it. We're starting that conference. It's in Seattle um, this year. But one of the things we're starting with is a nice plenary session on ECPR. And one of the things we'll be featuring is the team that did a really a, an ECPR case. This is a mountain rescue in Seattle. It got a lot of attention at the time, which was unique because this was the fall of 2020 and there were other things going on related to ECMO at that time. But even still, there was a hiker that got caught in an avalanche on Mount Rainier and uh, was really hypothermic. Um, But he was brought to Harborview and that's where a team took care of him. So that team you'll get to hear from. You'll also get to hear from some of the leading authors and principal investigators in ECPR. And we're really excited about bringing all of them together globally uh, to talk about what's the latest and greatest with there. And it's, um, I think what will get highlighted there, both talking to the team, but also in that session is some of the importance of systems work. And and you, if you're in the ECPR space at all, you know how important it is to have a good relation and processes in place with your referral network and being able to pick up a patient and know what to do with them and how do you get emergency credentials at another site and things like this. But if you've thought about that and put these processes in place, um, things go better for the patients you're trying to serve. And, and Dominic uh, is, a, is a great uh, speaker about that. I'm sure he'll be touching on that. But beyond that, this the theme is um, inspiring innovation that's what we'll be talking about. There's a lot going on in ECMO, um, and uh, we y- you won't want to miss it. Two and a half days of being together, just with friends and family, talking about ECMO.
2: Well, uh, you you sold the conference, and I'm going to sell Seattle and say, go watch the fish throwing. Watch the fish throwing at that fish market if you ever want to see something. <laughs> that was, that was one of the best things to see in Seattle. Maybe the gum wall is gone. I think the gum wall went away.
0: Oh, the gum wall is still there. I was oh, the there, still there. It.
2: oh yeah, it's still there. The gum, gum wall is amazing it's too.
0: Zach,
1: Zach, have you ever seen the gum wall? I have not. I've seen the fish, but I've never seen the gum wall. The gum wall is oh, unbelievable.
2: So, um, Say, so, Christine, I really want to thank you. And, and I'm going to ask Zach, do you have any questions for Christine? But anything you want to bring up?
1: Well, I'm, I'm just amazed by you, Christine. You can navigate in so many different worlds. Like you can talk the talk technically about medicine. You can do the the business side of it. You can do the politics side of it, the industry side of it. I mean, how you juggle all these different things is is actually amazing to me.
0: Oh, that's that's a great compliment that I'll pass on to all the people that helped me do all this stuff, including both of you. So thank you.
1: I will also say one other maybe less known fact about you is that you're also a phenomenal runner. How many Boston marathons have you done?
0: Uh 12 of those.
1: Twelve marathons. Absolutely incredible. But Boston's the yeah. easy one, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she has to qualify for it all twelve of those years too. I mean, this this is a it's a lot of running.
0: Yeah, well, right. you you know that too, Zach. So.
2: Well, I just really want to thank you for coming up and uh, and you know being able to you know inform us on Elso, inform us on what Elso does. And I think for those of you who are listening who are not members of Elso, it, it is a great conference to go to. It's a great advocacy group for the work that uh, that the ED ECMO and other you know ECMO podcasts are promoting. And um, and I think that the uh, the the opportunity. To uh, go to Elso and meet the experts in the field who are teaching at that it has always been great. I, I went to my first Elso, I want or Elso conference, I want to say in 2014 or 15 in Phoenix, and had Stephen Conrad teaching how to do uh, ECMO management, et cetera. And that's where it all started for me. You know, was that seven or eight years ago? And uh, and so I I appreciate Elso, and uh, I thank you so much for spending the time with us.
0: Oh, well, thank you both, and I'm looking forward to seeing you both in Seattle, but also. This really resonates with your community and please let me know if there's a way you want to get involved in ELSO. uh, You can find me. I'm not hard to find cstead at ELSO.org or my cell phone's on the website too. So please reach out. Happy to connect.
1: All right. That's Christine Stead. Thank you, Christine. That was awesome. Thanks John for making it happen. A couple of things that came up after the podcast, we talked about the ELSO website. I'd encourage you all to go there. It's got information about courses and how to get your hospital registered with elso it talks about how um, you can get live data streams so you can compare your hospital to these other hospitals all over the world you can see covid data vva data ecpr data va ecmo data so i encourage you to check it out and so with that signing off